This evening's lecture and associated events are generously sponsored by the Isabel Kellogg Thomas Lectureship Fund with additional support from the Friends of the Goucher College Library, the Betty and Edgar Swearin Book Studies Fund, and the Baltimore Bibliophiles. So my welcome is on behalf of all of those wonderful entities, all of whom are also represented in the audience tonight. Well, except for Isabel Kellogg Thomas, who I think died in 1927. Um, so tonight is officially a book studies event, and in a minute I'm going to turn you over to Professor April Ottinger, who is chair of book studies. But since we're also celebrating the retirement of a dear colleague, uh, professor of English, Arnie Sanders, I'm going to take advantage of the floor to say a few words uh, from the library. Um, so just yesterday I got an email from Arnie that was really emblematic of his relationship with the library. Hi, folks. I was just tiptoeing around the library ever-changing website and discovered an empty blog site. Could maybe I and my students collaborate and, and develop some content from the class we're teaching now? So we always know that if we change something in the library that Arnie will notice and let us know. So I have to confess that internally we sometimes refer to him as our canary in the coal mine. Um, but, but it's affectionately because it's a real gift to have someone who cares as much about, uh, about what we do. And we know, also know that he's very likely to make a creative suggestion. So Arnie has probably uh, interacted with the library in more ways than, than just about any other uh, faculty on this campus. As director of the writing program, we worked together on issues of information literacy. As a scholar, he discovered our wonderful um, spate Chaucer and conducted extensive scholarly work around it. Um, as a teacher, he engaged and inspired many students in book-related projects, like organizing a student descriptive bibliography group. Now, who would think you could get students to be in a descriptive book? They loved it, and they discovered four incunabula that we were unaware we had because they had been bound in the back of a 1499 samovand. Okay, and I know the people in this room know what those words mean. Um, he also managed to organize uh, about 45 people to do a marathon, cover-to-cover -cover reading of The Hobbit when we opened the Athenaeum, and this was following a summer's worth of work with, with a student. Um, and discovering all there was to learn about that particular edition of The Hobbit. So, but working together to imagine the Brooke Pierce Center for undergraduate research and, and seeing the birth of the book studies program that Arnie inspired has been an amazing experience. We started at, the, at Goucher about the same time, and it's really hard for me to imagine this place without him. Um, next on the platform, I'm going to, I'm really pleased to introduce another treasured uh, member of our faculty, April Ottinger, Professor of Art History and Director of the Book Studies Program. April. Good evening and welcome to Goucher College. Um, thank you for introducing me, uh, Nancy. I, um, very proudly direct book studies and 
I uh, wanted to say just a very quick word about that and some words about Arnie and then introduce tonight's speaker. Um, Book Studies is an interdisciplinary minor that has now been around for three years and explores the book in its many forms and the role of the book in transmitting and transforming knowledge across time and cultures. Uh, the historians, art historians, artists, literary scholars, and librarians who teach courses in book studies engage their students in the role of the book in constructing and in packaging history, as Arnie has put it, in making history, as Robert Darton has put it. And book studies not only represents a, a collaboration among Goucher faculty and staff across disciplines, but it benefits immeasurably from the bibliographic treasure trove of Baltimore and the Mid-Atlantic, and especially from the expertise and the generosity of our area colleagues who have opened their libraries, their archives, their book conservation labs, and private collections to our students. And so a warm thank you because so many of you are in the room tonight. We come together this evening to celebrate Dr. Arnold Sanders, professor of English, specialist in medieval literature, and ardent bibliophile, which I, I think all of you have gathered uh, at this point. <laughs> I'm fond of saying the English 241, the archaeology of text, a course that Arnie first taught in 2007, is the pioneer course in book studies at Goucher, and that those of us who teach book studies uh, at Goucher stand on the shoulders of Arnie. As many of you know, Arnie has been a faithful and ardent advocate for books and instills in his students the miraculous ability to breathe life back into so-called cadaver books, <laughs> one of the famous assignments from English 241. And so doing, his students gain a more nuanced appreciation for books, their makers, and their readers, and in the broadest sense, the multiplicity of memory. Professor Sanders' teaching benefited from Rare Book School, where he took courses including the famous Des Bib, which many of you are familiar with in this room, uh, descriptive bibliography, and the 15th century book, experiences that deepened his study of books at Goucher and laid the foundations for many important discoveries. And I'll pause to mention just one. We mentioned uh, the spate Chaucer, his discovery of an illustrious feline reader of the spate Chaucer, some of you know about this, uh, who left traces of itself in the Shipman's Tale, in our 1598 edition, evidenced by ink spatters and cat paws on the leaves. So that was Arnie's, among his many uh, notable discoveries, and there were many others too. Dr. Sanders worked alongside undergraduate students, some with us tonight, Kathy Brand, class of 09, um, on important long-term projects, the most ambitious of which was a census of Goucher's James W. Bright collection of about 400, uh, four, excuse me, 4,000 mostly early printed books that the college acquired in the 1920s. And many of those students went on to pursue degrees in special collections librarianship. It seems to me that the opportunity to reflect on the humanistic dimensions of the book and the artful, indeed poetic, nature of memory matters more than ever for students of the liberal arts. To me, Arnie personifies that most humanistic endeavor. So we could imagine no one better suited to honor Arnie's contribution to Goucher College and book studies than bringing Dr. Michael Suarez to campus. And we're absolutely thrilled to welcome him. I'll try to keep my comments brief. And for those of you who know about Michael's extensive career, know that any attempt to summarize this is a Herculean task. 
So I'll just start from birth. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Michael Suarez is served as director of Rare Book School, professor of English, uh, university professor, and honorary curator of special collections at the University of Virginia since 2009. Father Suarez, a Jesuit priest, as many of you know, holds two master's degrees from the Western Jesuit School of Theology and two masters and a doctorate from Oxford. He has written widely on various aspects of 18th century English literature, bibliography, and book, book history, and has held research fellowships from the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study at Harvard University, the Nat National Endowment for the Humanities, the American Council of Learned Societies, and the Folger Shakespeare Library. He is a CLIR Distinguished Presidential Fellow, a member of the Board of Trustees of the Library Company of Philadelphia, advisor on the Advisory Board of the Library of Congress Literary Literacy Awards Program, the Council of the Bibliographical Society of America, and the Board of Managers of the Lewis Walpole Library at Yale University. And we're going to quiz you on this afterwards, all this, this long list. Um, he most recently delivered the 2015 Lyell Lectures in Bibliography at the University of Oxford. And on July 28, 2015, President Barack Obama named Michael Suarez member of the National Council on the Humanities. Um, very notable. In addition to all of this, Betty Swearen brought to my attention some time ago that Michael rode with a champion team at Oxford. <laughs> and, <laughs> and he's actually, he is, uh, this is the subject of a book that actually turned film with someone who plays Michael Suarez, and I just can't remember his name but we, Michael can discuss this with you afterwards. It's called True Blue, The Oxford Boat Race Mutiny. A good read, I've yet to see the film. Um, but before all this, I would like to mention that um, Michael graduated from a liberal arts college right up the road, Bucknell University. And I think that's really significant. It's really nice to have him here at our liberal arts college this evening. So please join me in extending a warm welcome to Dr. Michael Torres. Thank you very much, April. I, I'm really delighted to be here and delighted to be here, particularly on a night when we honor Arnie and his signal contribution to the book studies program here. Um, the actor who played me in the film was, of course, Denzel Washington, <laughs> as everyone would readily imagine. great English poet W.H. Auden said that a professor is someone who talks in someone else's sleep. So here we are, the night is growing a little bit late and we're starting a little bit late. So um, my job is to try to keep you awake until the reception, yeah? So, but before I talk about nature illuminated in 18th century hand-colored books, I want to acknowledge what's happening here. Here at Goucher College in the Book Studies program, which I think is really important, among the Baltimore bibliophiles, um, and this, this amazing now kind of consortium that's happening in the, in the Baltimore area, which I think is, is really a milestone and um, extremely salutary development for book studies. Um, the Emma in America project, to which everyone will give before you leave the room tonight, 
Um, but, but there's just so much good that's happening here. And one of the people who have made it happen for a long time is Arnie. And, and I just want to acknowledge what he's done. And I would ask you to join me in giving him a round of applause. was told you would mind, but I'm going home tomorrow. <laughs> and I thought it was appropriate. So I want to talk to you today about the problem of color in 18th century natural history books. I want to specifically talk about the book from which these images came from. As you can see, they're amazingly colored. And um, these images come from a Dutch book about the fishes of the Indian Ocean. And uh, it occurred to me that the 18th century is the great era of the natural history color plate book. And the reason why I chose to talk about this topic tonight is because I think that we need to treat these books that are printed and yet hand-colored as if each copy were more akin to a manuscript than to a printed book. And this seemed to me to kind of bridge Arnie's own interests between manuscript and print for the medieval book kind of forces us into that juxtaposition. So um, it is the case, ladies and gentlemen, that Isaac Newton began lecturing about the spectra of white light as early as the 1670s in Cambridge and publishing his results in the Philosophical Transactions. So the idea that light could become a category of knowledge, that color could be a way of knowing the natural world was certainly legitimated by the publication of Newton's optics in 1704. This was a long lead up from the 1770s. So um, after Newton's optics, a whole slew of people take this up and they try to apply it to the question of representing the natural world in all its difficulty, in all its complexity, in all its pluriformity. In the 18th century, we have something that might be called the Linnaean paradox, as it were. You'll know that the great Swedish taxonomist Carl Linnaeus keeps saying over and over again, look at structure and function. Stop looking at color. It changes. It's fugitive. It's difficult. And the people in the field and the bibliophiles and the collectors of curiosities keep demanding more and more and more to have color. So Linnaeus keeps getting more taxonomic away from color and the books continue to proliferate. 
the failure of bibliography and book history to engage with the great 18th century color plate book seems to me um, a failure of kind of, if you will, intellectual courage. Because although color is an extremely fugitive topic and difficult to capture, it was so important to the creators of books in the 18th century and so important to the consumers of books in the 18th century that I think that perforce we must engage with the problematics of color production and what color production means epistemologically, economically, and culturally in the 18th century. So as this color wheel demonstrates from shortly after the publication of Newton's optics, once Newton establishes his system, everything is taken care of, no problem. As you can see here, this is orange and this is violet. The colorist, of course, couldn't read English. And, and, and so he had no idea what he was doing. And so the sort of, the, the key to the whole treatise is deeply flawed. Um, the problem of representation and of color has been identified all the way back to the first century AD when Pliny the Elder says, you know, you're not gonna get this right. People are gonna make copies of copies. The images are gonna wobble from the original. The exemplar is swimming somewhere in an ocean or flying across the sky. How are you gonna do this? This is a dangerous thing. And yet even acknowledging the, as it were, epistemological danger, people keep wanting to do it. So even before Newton, there's a huge impetus in the 17th century to try to get it right, to try to catalog pigments and colors in order to name them and to say, this is this. Is this. Let's all call this the same thing. The Pantone book is a product of the, the early 1960s, okay? These people are trying to make Pantone books beforehand. This is the one that you will all know. This is Richard Waller, who publishes this in the Philosophical Transactions. Um, and, and you know, they're desperate to find a way to get it right. My favorite of all these books is a French book from the middle of the 18th century in which the scientist says, and by this blue, I mean the color of the sky in Paris on a perfect day in May. <laughs> all right then. <laughs> We're kind of done then, right? We've, we've got it down. Um, a recent discovery in Aix-en-Provence is, is uh, this, this color dictionary by Bugart and, and 800 pages of color samples, very systematic naming and dilution of colors, gradations of colors. Um, published only in manuscript in 1692. A remarkable book. But I think that, that um, all of these together show something of the drive to try to stabilize the whole question of color production in the period. 
So here's the deal. The books took so long to produce because of the color. They cost so much money because of the color. They were so precious and valued by collectors over time because of the color. But we, as bibliographers and book historians, have prescinded entirely from color because it's not in Fredson Bauer's book on how to describe how to describe books. So, so if it's not in principles of bibliographical description, if it's fugitive, messy, difficult, everybody said, whoa, it's not in the rule book, so we can't do it. That's stupid. <laughs> okay. Instead, we need to come not with the rule book in hand, but instead with humility. We need to have the humility to throw the rule book aside and to say, what will attending in a sustained and humble way to the object as it was made by the communities who created it in the 18th century, what does the object teach us that we need to know? What questions does the object demand be answered? And then, how could we develop answers to those questions? So for me, in the question of these natural history books, I started to work with members of other communities outside the book historical community. Art historians like Henrietta Ryan in Cambridge and historians of science, conservators, scientists like Fenella France at the Library of Congress, in order to try to figure out this whole question of color. This is not an issue merely for book historians and bibliographers. You see recently that the Met has been having a series of symposia on the whole question of color and um, what, it, what it might mean. So a number of people have come at this problem, particularly in the art historical community, uh, as it were, April's tribe, um, by looking at the manuals for painting and, and by looking at you know, how you get together your pigments and your gum Arabic, what the colors are called and how they might be mixed and so on. And, and this is all really interesting, but I'm not going to talk about that at all tonight. Um, instead, I'd like to talk principally about this book, uh, which is commonly, commonly just known as the, the Poisson, Reynard's Poisson. Reynard was a very interesting man um, who was working in Amsterdam. Uh, if we wanted to put this in a, in a sexy way, we would say he was a spy for King George. But, but that's not really accurate. Um, he was kind of a news gatherer for the British government. And um, he's famous really for two bookish productions, this and a very large and rather important Dutch commercial atlas. Um, so here we have the, um, the fish, the crayfish, and the crabs of the Indian Ocean. And this book 
is extraordinary. When the book came out and people saw the colors of the reef fishes of the Indian Ocean, they said, this cannot be. One reader in Paris wrote a letter in which he said, I know this is impossible because God never would have drawn with so garish a crayon. <laughs> but of course, they, they couldn't know. They couldn't know that reef fishes were hyper bright. So, but, but Reynard knew that this would be a problem, and so he attained letters testimonial from people who were closely associated with the production of the watercolors on which the book was based. So he gets the, the son of the governor of Ambon, so this is all Dutch East India Company stuff, and he gets the, the son of the governor who says, my dad commissioned these. And he commissioned them at the time from people who were at the place, and this stuff is accurate. And that takes care of the first book, first half of the book, and then he got Samuel Fallor, who did the illustrations in the second half of the book, and he says, I was there, I was an agent of the company. I had people bring me the fishes, and I rendered them as best I could according to the limitations of my materials. So these letters testimonial are meant to say, look, you may be incredulous, but this stuff is real. The problem, of course, is that nobody in Amsterdam in 1719 had the Discovery Channel, <laughs> right? They didn't know that this is what these things really do look like. And so never having seen anything like this before, and of course, not being able to take the three-year journey in order to be able to go check, there was a problem a problem and a great possibility. The possibility, people had never seen anything like this before. The problem, could it really be true? And if it were true, how could you know? How could you verify that this was in fact the case? We know that uh, from some surviving correspondence that the original edition of a hundred copies consisting of a hundred colored plates each did not entirely sell out. In fact, only two-thirds of it sold. And so uh, a group of businessmen were just going to take the leftover uh, printed but not colored um, fishes and color them in according to the exemplar and publish them in the middle of the century. But a local collector said, oh, print the whole thing, go ahead, print up to 100 again, you can do it. And this turned out to be a bibliographical nightmare because you had some sheets that were printed in 1718, 19, and some that were printed in 1752, 53, 54, 
and now they start to get mixed together and we don't have to deal with that tonight. But, but you can see that this extraordinary book really began to occupy the imagination of natural historians. And, and how, how could it not? Um, and in this particular case, uh, they took out the letters testimonial, which seemed a little bit old and a little bit quaint anyway, and they mounted a new defense in the mid-century edition. They said, this seems silly to you because you don't know anything. <laughs> now, this is really hard to, to find some redress for, right? You know, they said, go ahead. You ever been to the Indian Ocean? Have you ever lived on the island of Ambon? Because our people had, and they had native informants bring them these fishes. So what do you got? And, and that's pretty smart defense, really. You know, our ignorance intensifies our incredulity. And, and what are you going to do there? Um, now, fortunately, there's an ichthyologist on the West Coast, uh, I think he's in Washington, named Ted Peisch, and he has looked at Reynard's poisson, and he has shown that about 91% of the actual renderings are traceable to a real creature which he can identify. So not bad going, really. Uh, and of course, this work is entirely beyond my ken, but for Peisch, who is a fish taxonomist, this was like a busman's holiday for him to determine how accurate the book really was. Um, it's also true that a little old-fashioned bibliographical analysis by tracing watermark evidence could start to tell us which sheets came from which printings and how, because the book's entirely printed from plates, so you can't tell from the other evidence but you certainly can use the watermark evidence to sort of develop a kind of chronology of the plates. But here's the problem. Even if you know when the engravings were pulled, you still can't know when they were colored. Because even if a whole batch of the black and white engravings were made on the rolling press, right? Not on a common press, but on a star press or a rolling press for the engravings, right? They would have them. And then as you came and asked for a copy and you came and asked for a copy, I would pick up the phone and say to my colorist, okay, let's make five copies because the, the largest number of hours that went into the manufacture of the book, not the largest fee paid to the laborers, however, because most of them were women and children, was for the coloring. So even though we can determine, bless you, when the sheets were printed, we can never know when they were colored and to make matters Worse still, Nancy. We can never know <laughs> under what circumstances the book that we're looking at has been stored for the previous 300 years. We don't know how hot it was in any one person's library. 
We don't know how humid it was. We don't know what happens to the pigments in the variability of storage conditions. So now this becomes a pretty difficult problem to solve. Complicated still further by the fact that in 1782, a third edition comes out with different factors. There are six copies of these known to exist in the world with all sorts of great pictures, again, and wonderful Linnaean notes. I think this is such a cool book. But um, very, very difficult to know how accurate it is. So I thought that perhaps it would be useful to try, try to develop a method in order to try to determine what was the color fidelity within an edition? What was the color fidelity across the three editions? What was the color fidelity in relation to the natural historical specimen that was actually being depicted? How good was the science? And I thought to myself, Michael, if you are very, very lucky, maybe you could find the watercolor exemplar from which the books were made, and then you could compare the colored mass production plates to the originary exemplar. But I thought, the problem is, if I go around the world taking pictures of these books, which I've been privileged to do, I'm going to need to do that with the same camera, so it's got the same sensor, and light changes even during the course of the day. So what I'm going to need to do is I'm going to need to take picture of two books in the same frame, so that by juxtaposing the books and looking at the plates, we can say to ourselves, OK, here's 19, here's 54. What do we think? Is that the same? Really? What do we think? How faithful is that? How faithful is that? Hmm. And, and what counts as color fidelity? Right? So, but, but this is taken in the exact same light because they're in the exact same frame with the exact same camera. So try to eliminate all the variability that I could. How faithful is faithful? 1954. Good, bad, what kind of grade do you want to give these guys? There are only three pla two places in the world that have all three editions. One of them is the Natural History Museum in London, which has a fabulous library. And so, so it, was, it, was, it was fun to do. So here's 54 and 82 <laughs> together. What do we think? The same play and the same play. How do we read that? How would they have read it? And how could we know? I think it's also the case that objects make their culturally instantiated meanings always, always, always in relation to other objects. We never look at an object without having in our heads a constellation of other relevant objects that inflect the ways that we see, that help to determine the ways that we know. 
And so I think that one of the books that we need to attend to is um, Rumphius's book of, of, of crabs and shells published in 1705, which is also depicting the fauna of Ambon, also a product of the Dutch East India Company. It's issued in colored and uncolored copies. And here you can see how bright the color is again and again and again. And what a beautiful production this, this book is. I'm sorry, I'm... It's the speaker. It's the speaker. You know, Quine was right about language. So um, it's interesting that, that in this book by Rumpf, the great Dutch naturalist, um, Latinized as Rumpfius, um, we see two kind of very interesting conflicting images as the portals for the book. On the one hand, here are the indigenous peoples bringing the riches of the Indies to the Patres Graviori of, of Amsterdam. They're bringing the riches of the colony to further enlighten and ennoble them. It's an image of servitude, an image of um, nature being offered to civilization. Uh, for me, at least, a kind of repulsive image. Um, but then there's this image not of plentitude, but of, of Protestant asceticism. For here is Rumpf, age 68, blind because he caught a disease on Ambon that led the sunlight to, to blind him. So from his work, he's blind. He's alone in the study with his specimens and his knowledge, very sparely dressed. And, and this, is, this is an image of the man who has dedicated his life uh, to seeking knowledge with great purpose and discipline. And, and here he is. And how are we to understand these two images? It's also the case uh, that uh, Maria Sibylla Marian has to influence a book produced in Amsterdam about, uh, about a Dutch colony um, because she was so popular. And here is an unusual copy. Um, the uncolored copies tend not to survive nearly as well as the colored ones, which, which really, really pop, it seems to me. And again, the lavishness of the fruits of the colonies being delivered to the Dutch colony is, is certainly very important. Um, but hang on. What do we see here? This is a rather different plate. And if we put them together, we can see the plate mark here for the first, but no plate marks present at all. And we realize that the second copy on your right is the deluxe offset copy. When the wet uh, paper was run through the rolling press a second time to make a softer image, which you see has a much higher degree of, of luminescence in it. And um, these, these are Miriam's deluxe copies, many of them presentation copies. 
But again, I think it's important that we think about color production and color fidelity, the rendering of the natural historical specimen. Um, it's also true that there is a great Anglo-American naturalist operating at the same time, more or less. Uh, Mark Catesby, many of you will know his work on the Carolinas. This is the second volume from the first edition. And Catesby issued his uh, great natural history book on the flora and fauna of the Carolinas in parts and fascicles of 10 plates a pop. And um, that's a technical bibliographical term. And um, he enraged his subscribers because he insisted on coloring them all himself and eventually let his daughter help, insisted on engraving them all himself. He couldn't keep up with the subscription. And, and what was supposed to take about three years took 12 years. But so insistent was he to get it right. Catesby himself says, you have to have color. It's ridiculous not to have color. The raison d'etre of my book is to render the things as I saw them on the two trips that I made to the Carolinas. And he's obsessed about rendering the things in their proper colors. And the effect of that color can be seen in the difference between his black and white prospectus for the book, and even if we take a very black and white creature, how different this is once we see it in Catesby's full color rendering. So he says, I took special pains with the particular colors, and he says, the fish, which do not retain their colors out of their element, I put them in the water, I took them out, I put them in the water, I took them out, because the colors change. Many of you will know that in Cook's second voyage to the Pacific, um, there was a special room with a specimen tank in it so that the natural historians could draw the fishes from life by looking in the glass tank rather than by taking the fishes out of the water. This is a problem that comes up again and again and again. So for Catesby, I've been looking at three different fishes. Um, this one, this one, and this one. I'm only going to look at, at the hogfish tonight. You'll be relieved to know. This is Catesby's watercolor. Uh, rendering um, from which the, uh, the book was made of a hogfish. This is what a real hogfish looks like. And I thought that you should see the natural historical specimen. So, so this, is, this is a copy of the first edition colored by Catesby himself. And here we see the first edition, now Catesby's dead. Look what happens. Do you see how the color moves? Do you see how the specimen changes? What does that mean in a Newtonian universe where color is meant to be a kind of way of knowing, a form of identifying the phylum in the field as it is? So here you see the first edition of the Natural History Museum, the second edition in the Bodleian Library. And, and Catesby goes international pretty quickly. Here you see German edition and a later German edition. 
And by the time we get to the third edition in the Natural History, History Museum, he's changed high, in a highly significant way that would have Catesby himself spinning in his grave. This is um, the drawing of the hogfish as it appears in a scientific field guide produced in the 1990s by a professional illustrator named Val Kells. And, and you can see how different that is, how reserved that is compared to the colors that we've seen. Uh, Jefferson was right when he says, well, the, col the colors are way overdone in Catesby. And yet Jefferson traded in his first edition copy for a second edition copy because he liked the really bright colors. And everybody did. So everybody says, yeah, this is overcolored. Give me more. <laughs> and this is the kind of story of the natural history book throughout the 18th century. There's this kind of craving for color in the natural world. Um, so along comes Eliezer Alban, and he says, I'm going to get this right. They, they try to outdo nature. They make the picture outdo nature. And he says, I'm going to fix that. So he has quite a chaste palette as he, as he illustrates his English insects. Um, it's true that Edwards, who is a disciple of Catesby, sits at Catesby's knee for a long time. He himself ends up being a great bird illustrator here, George Edwards. And, and there is a surviving copy in the Cambridge University Library which shows how obsessed he is to get this right. Why, people said to me all the time, why do you care so much about this? This is a crazy, crazy quest. I say, well, I have to care because the people who made these books cared. It's their carefulness that makes me need to figure out how to engage with what they valued most. And so he says, I've revised this. I've made sure. I, I retouched it. I colored it. You can look at the original drawings. And then he goes on to say, when you're making plates that are going to be colored, you have to make them differently than plates that aren't going to be colored. And then he talks at great length for eight pages about what's involved. And he even says, I've made sure that no uncolored plates have gotten out. Because after I die, then people would color them in to make them more valuable. And then they'd be wobbly and wrong. So I won't let that happen. But in case anybody does get the plates and make any uncolored ones, I've given exact names for every bit. He had great faith in language. You know, I mean this green. So, so, as I say, Val Kells, this, this um, scientific illustrator whose work has been exhibited all over the world, has been a, a great partner in crime um, with me. And um, it was she who, who said to me, uh, Michael, you need to look at this picture. I said, you see that? Michael, that's a rockfish. And you see that? That's a rockfish. And that's a rockfish, and that's a rockfish, and that's a rockfish. And in fact, they all don't have just the same common name. They have the same genus and species. So now what are you going to do? How do you deal with the question of variability? 
And here's a pinfish seconds after it's come out of the, out of the water. And here's a pinfish three minutes after it's come out of the water. And here's a pinfish in spirit being preserved. Okay, I'm sorry we're proceeding to dinner after this. I, I trust that there won't be a fish course. But what do you do about this problem? And, and how, how do we grapple with that? Here's, here's Val Kells, the scientific illustrator, and here's James Prosek, illustrating the same species who the New York Times called the Autobahn of Fish. Interesting title, but that's what, that's what he was called, the James Audubon of fishes. So, so how are we to reconcile these, so even in the 21st century? So one of the people who tries to get it right is Moses Harris, and he says, okay, I've, I've seen Edwards, I've seen Catesby, I've seen all those guys, I've looked at Reynard, I've looked at Maria, and, and I know, and I'm gonna get it right. So I'm gonna give you careful descriptions, I'm gonna do it all properly, and I'm going to give you the key. I'm gonna start out in the beginning of the volume with a color wheel, and this way, we're going to get it perfect. And here are all the colors and all the descriptions. And here's plate five. And he says, nailed it. <laughs> and now, here's the second edition. And there's the color wheel. <laughs> and there's plate five. And now when we look at the two color wheels, what do we see? Huh, huh, a little bit of a problem perhaps. And then we go back and we see that the first color wheel says this was made and colored by the author. It says it in Latin, don't worry about it. But the point is, now what are we gonna do? Are we gonna resort, Arnie, to some kind of authorial intention? Some kind of primary intention and say, well, this is the originary text and therefore it's more authoritative? What are we gonna do? So here's plate five and plate five. What do we think? Are they the same? Are they different? And yet there's yet another edition with another color wheel. And when we start to put them together and put the plate fives together, what do we see? Look at that compared to that. What are we going to do here? Is that the same? Look at this compared to this. <laughs> So, so, but this is the enlightenment, right? There is no color printing or there's damn little color printing. You are dependent, if you want to make these books, you are dependent upon the question of hand coloring. And again and again and again, in the most iterative way, every new natural history book that comes out says, I'm going to get it right. The only surviving color exemplars that I've been able to find are um, in the American Museum of Natural History for a 19th century book of, uh, of insects. But you can see that these kind of cards were put out in the talier, in the workshop, for the, the colorists to imitate. Um, and so when we go back to that 1782 Reynard Poisson, and we start to look at them in their multiple copies, one of the problems we discover is the subscription fails after the first 40 plates. 
but there are two copies extant in the world. One at the Houghton Library at Harvard University, which they don't even know is Reynard Poisson because it has a manuscript title page. And they just say, like, Dutch fish book. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's Reynard Poisson, as you can see, unmistakably. And it's got 100 plates. It's got the full complement, as does the complete copy in Utrecht. Um, and if you look at the uh, watermark evidence, book history, cum bibliography, both and the old-fashioned way and the new, maybe inventive way, you need them both, you can discern that these are actually recycled sec second edition copies. And if you're very lucky, if you are very fortunate indeed, you can be sitting in the British Library one day and find that Louis Reynard um, made a gift of the watercolor exemplar to Hans Sloan, miscatalogued in the British Library, but there nonetheless. And you can see the way Sloan had it bound in red Morocco with lavish gold tooling, indicating that this was a prized possession. Why? Because Sloan took 25 copies of the first edition for distribution to members of the Royal Society. And so grateful was Reynard, a whole quarter. That's like having the Book of the Month Club take on your book, or better yet, the Folio Society, right? And so he gives him the watercolor exemplar. And now we can look at the originary document from which everything else came. And we can begin to see the different notes that Reynard made, that Sloan made, and we can begin to understand the genesis and development of this remarkable milestone in natural history. And we can also discover that both Sloan and Reynard, because there are about 500 different fishes depicted, ran out of gas and just stopped annotating at some point. But if we, if we look very carefully and we can see folio seven and note these five fishes, if you will, okay? Note this constellation, as it were, of five fishes. And if we go to the printed book and we look at King George I's copy, the patron's copy, and if we look at Joseph Banks' copy of the second edition, a very good copy indeed, because he would have a whole clothing store named after him <laughs> late, later on, right? We, we, can be, we can begin to see that here in the same image, under the same light, on the same day, with the same camera, is the first edition and the second edition. And we can compare that to the exemplar. And we can say that the whole composition of the plate comes directly from the watercolor that Reynard got. And we can do so again and again. And here you see Planche KK. And so here, and these two fishes, and you can see here the same two fishes in KK, in George's copy and in Banks's. And over time, we can begin to recognize the degree to which the first edition is overcolored. Why? 
because it was tarted up, because it was exciting, because color production of this kind was new, because Rumphius had issued his great book on the crabs in living color, because Maria uh, Syria, Maria Sibylla Miriam had issued her great work on the insects of Suriname in incredible color. And over time we can see the degree to which the deviation from the exemplar occurs again and again and again. And here's Planche 39, here's the, here's the beast in question. Um, and we can begin to see how brightly he appears. She, I'm not sure. Um, I never did learn how to figure that out. And so, ladies and gentlemen, have we solved anything? <laughs> have we explained anything away? It seems to me, no. But is the aim of historical study explanation? or understanding? Do we know a little bit more about the problematics and the possibility? Are we alive a little bit more to the complex cultural resonances? Do we know a little bit more about what was at stake in the production and dissemination of these books? about the nascent understanding of the natural world, about Ambon in the Indian Ocean, and the Carolinas and Suriname coming again and again into the studies of learned gentlemen on the continent. I feel like this is the Greek chorus hissing at me. <laughs> Both on the continent and in Great Britain. It seems to me, ladies and gentlemen, that the object of our study when dealing with something so fugitive and so complex ought never to be explanation, but rather ought to be a humble, historically grounded understanding that leads us again and again to further inquiry. Thank you very much.
tension there. You see a lot of, a lot of, of this as well, the wonder of, of making art. That, that's language for artists. Absolutely, absolutely. And um, these books are for connoisseurs. These books are extremely high-priced objects. And, and it seems to me that, that bibliography and book history, if it's to have a future, needs to locate that future in relation to the other object-oriented disciplines. So I think book studies needs to be more and more in dialogue with art history, with museum studies, with anthropology, with archaeology, because in every case, the raison d'etre of what we do is to understand the object in history, and perhaps to understand the object as a kind of agent of history as well. And, and it seems to me that bibliography and book history have productive things to, to teach our history. But it also seems to me that art history has plenty to teach bibliography and, and, and book studies. Uh, and so too with archaeology and anthropology and so on. So, so there's a lot of art language in these prefaces. And I think that there are two principal reasons for that. One, the audience for the books is very much the same audience uh, that are buying master prints. Um, that are buying artworks. So when you look at the libraries, when we can reconstruct them, of the consumers of these books, um, they're very much part and parcel with other deluxe cultural productions that are redolent of this very kind of language, um, often in multiple tongues. Um, but, but I also think it's true that uh, we're, we're witnessing a kind of a shift uh, in the very era when these books are being produced, where the representation of the object owes much more to the art historical than to the scientific. And that's changing over time. Um, but it won't be till the very end of the 18th, early decades of the 19th, where, where that changes sort of in a, in a liminal way. So, so, so I think that there's a, a kind of a, an intellectual dis discourse at work here, and I think that there's a discourse of connoisseurship and collecting at work here. And, and both of those are very much inflected by the, the social production of art, if you will. Yeah. Please. I guess I'm puzzled because we're taught that um, early books in Cunibles are copies of or tried to ape the manuscript edition. And there's so many hand-colored gorgeous editions of going from this, for example, in the 12th century, or even in the early prints, uh, we find the Marguerite Philosophica of Reich and others hand-colored Why did it take Newton so long to make it to make these well, I think that, that um, well, I, let, me, let me just go back a second and then come to the Newton part, okay? Um, I, I had a professor uh, named Donald Francis McKenzie who was very fond of saying um, the producers of incunables were not trying to make their books look like manuscripts. They were trying to make their books look like books. And the domain of books was manuscripts. 
And I think that that's a very important distinction. In other words, it's not like Gutenberg and his successors, it's not like Nicholas Jensen's was trying to make it look like a manuscript. He knew what a Bible should look like because he had seen Bibles all his life. And Bibles, all the Bibles he knew were manuscript Bibles. So when he tries to make the book look like a Bible, to us it's, we say, oh, he's making it look like a manuscript. But he's really just trying to make it look like a Bible because the domain of Bibles are manuscript Bibles. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I do think that's a kind of an important epistemological distinction because otherwise we would, we would be led to think that the, the producers of these books were somehow doctoring them for the market. And instead, they were just trying to make books that were good and true and beautiful. And books that were good and true and beautiful were manuscripts. Does that make sense? It does, except that if you want you know, to own something as beautiful as a manuscript and then to market its music, um, you, you couldn't afford the manuscript, but you could afford a print book designed by the printer. And those early printed books of music do use the same print shapes and so forth. Absolutely, because that's the universe of discourse that makes those books, it seems to me. In any case, what Newton does, it seems to me, is Newton, by figuring out that white light is divisible into the spectrum of the sort of Roy G. Biv that we all learned as children, he's, he's, he's giving a kind of a scientific basis. He's legitimizing color. It's not that color is not important. <coughs> uh, we, were, we were talking you know, earlier about um, 16th, 17th, and 18th century Venetian painting. And, and, you know, if you wonder if color is important or not, and, you know, look at, look at 18th century Venetian painting or 17th century Venetian painting, or we were talking earlier about the Lindisfarne Gospels. You know, the purple for the Lindisfarne Gospels is, is, is coming from 2,500 miles away, an enormous, unthinkable journey, you know, then. So color is always important, but it's it's the idea of color as a kind of epistemological category, as a validated category. Color is denigrated over and over and over again in the scientific literature in the 16th and 17th century. And then along comes Newton and says, nope, this is science. In fact, it's not just even biology, it's physics. And then that legitimates color as a category of knowing for natural historical discourse. That's what I'm maintaining anyway. I think that's borne out in the scholarly literature. I, I had a, a, a virtually unintelligible slide that would be pleased to know I needed, um, in, in which somebody's trying to make this, this point, but the sentences are very Latinate and periodic and difficult to get. So I But, but it's, a, it's a great question, and it is an ongoing problem, because, of course, um, the world of manuscript culture is, is brightly colored. And then the world of print, you know, we, we sort of ooh and all over the black and red title page. And if you've been working in the manuscript culture, you, know, you go like, what? What? You know, what happened to my blues? Who took my blues? You know, and that ad, right? So, so yeah, absolutely. And, and one of the things that the, the, the digital revolution, as it were, is doing for us, the 
seems to me, is, is restoring color um, for the consumers of text in a very powerful way, which I think is an extremely important thing. Please. I think it's really interesting about the study and your focus on the particular book, how it eliminates that moment where at the very time that color is being legitimated as a source of scientific knowledge, the book is a witness to its delegitimation by the same standard, right? Because the book is showing through your study of it, right, not necessarily producers, how there is instability in every single state. I mean, there's instability in the natural original source of the fish, there's instability in the color production, there's instability, you know, in the copies, there's, and probably there's instability in perception, but there's certainly instability in perception. So, I mean, it's an extraordinary, you know, I mean, unfriendly witness to its scientific future. You know, but I, I wanted to, to ask you about the reception a little bit and the, um, the, 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 the fact that people didn't believe it was true and okay, so maybe it wasn't because actually it's competing with other published books and it had to be super bright and, and happy and, and, and fabulous. Um, most of these books that you've looked at and your main book are coming from the world itself, they are products of the early did you find in the research any evidence that some of this um, sort of disbelief had anything to do with jealousy? Like, hey, what? These are places we're colonizing. They got better fish than us. They <laughs> <laughs> got better colors. It's, it's, a, it's a great question. You know, the, the, the destabilization. Um, it's not like everybody didn't believe. Lots of people just said, oh, you know, the, the wonders of creation kind of thing. And um, it is true that if you look, for instance, uh, one of the biggest concentrations of these books is in Hanover, because because the, the Hanoverian, you know, what's going to be the Hanoverian king, they, they, they love this book because it's a sign of what can be done. It's a sign of the lavishness. It's a sign of you know colonial production, even though it's not their colony. Um, but it's also true that somebody like Alban and the English insects, or somebody uh, you know like who's producing the British birds, they're talking about the problem of color wobble as a you know colloquial saying too. So everybody's talking about the problem, whether the the specimens being rendered. It's a problem of representation, right? Because every copy is essentially a manuscript. Um, so in a sense, even if you can locate the exemplar, and even if you get someone like George Edwards who says, I put a copy in the College of Physicians in London, and I put a copy at Oxford University, and I put a copy at Cambridge University, and I've, I've sort of color corrected all three copies, and I've got the originals, and if you want to know, this is how you do it. Um, he's really worried about this problem. He's writing this in 1760. You know, um, you know the, the, the book with the color wheels, that first one comes out in 1776. 
And, and these are things that everybody can see. Uh, and and so, so the problem for George starts out as a problem of exoticism, just as you say, because of the market. We can never prescind from the market. You know, we need book studies, as it were, because we need to think about the communities of makers and the communities of consumers and the reception history. But at the same time, we need the bibliography for the analysis that will underpin uh, and either prove or disprove some of our suppositions as we examine the artifact in history. So, so it's, a, it's a complex issue, but I wouldn't want to just draw a line and say colonial, non-colonial, because I think that um, on the one hand, you have uh, Miriam, and you have Rumpf, uh, and you have Reynard, um, and you have Catesby, which is a colonial production, even though it's made in London. Um, and on the other hand, you have in the second half of the century, all these domestic productions that are obsessed by the exact same problem set and, and the domain of color as, as a way of knowing. And in fact, they articulate the problem in a more thoroughgoing manner. I mean, Edwards for eight pages um, in close print. Uh, because, because they are the inheritors of the Napoleon worldview, and they know that they need to get this right. But there is no getting it right. I mean, in the end, there's no getting it right. And I suppose the, the, the coda here is, is that after the, the, the sort of efflorescence of color printing in the early 19th century, and even later on with, with lithography, it doesn't necessarily mean that the books are all right. It just means that they're all wrong in the same way. <laughs> right? Because, because the problem of representation still obtains. And so there's a kind of an antecedent problem of representation of the natural world. And then there's a problem of book production. And there's a problem of reception history. And then there's a problem of storage, use, understanding. And then there's a problem for us of, if you write to the Staatsbibliothek in Berlin and say, hey, could you make me a picture of plate 23? That's not going to cut it because you don't know what the specs are in the camera they used. You don't know what the light was. And you know, you've got to go and do it yourself. And, and um, in my case, fall down the stairs of the Staatsbibliothek. Um, true, it's a metaphor, I feel sure. Um, and, and, you know, and still not get it right. But you've got to, I still think that um, we can either choose to live in a Fredson Bowers universe where y equals nx plus b, and of course is an equine quadruped, you know, and, and, and we, can, we can do that. We can, we can replay the first chapter of hard time. Or, we can be, you know, humanists of the 21st century and, and know that there's no such thing as apodictic truth. And, and we can strive with all we have and all we can marshal and not know that we're individual investigators, but to sort of marshal the resources of the community together to 
creations of inquiry that can lead us a little bit more to understand the objects and more importantly, I think, to understand the decisions of the people who made them. If every book is a coalescence of human intentions, then recovering those intentions and understanding how materialities make cultural meaning seems to me a profoundly humanistic work that might even help revivify what humanistic inquiry means in the 21st century. That's my small And, the, and the, the white breasts and so on and so forth, the raven hair and yeah, sure. I mean, these are these are tropes, and they're culturally revealing tropes. It seems to me because uh, they, they they reveal notions of ideal beauty. Um, but then people start to say, well, when we say Carmine, when we say she was lovesick, and um, we use the word verdigree, what do we mean? Remember those color dictionaries that people are obsessively making? The first one I showed was 1420, uh, sorry, 1620. The last one I, I, I showed was uh, 92. So there's this whole project, as it were, taking place during the 17th century when they're saying, that's great, but what does that mean? How, and how could we know? And, and when you are at the Frankfurt Book Fair, and somebody says, okay, we're going to make this colored frontispiece, and we're going to do this in Ghent. How could I know in Ghent or Lyon, Paris or London or Canterbury what this really is when you tell me make this blue? What's blue? So they start to want to know. And then when they start to describe gems, and antiquities, when they start to say, like, well, here are the gem engravings of 
you know, this noble Roman family. How do you render that accurately over time? And so it becomes, it's a question of um, less about um, poetry and, and more about uh, the adequate representation of the natural world and of the created world. And, and so, so then what does that mean? People get very, very interested in the stability of color as well as in the nomenclature and, and especially in this whole question of well, what does it mean when you say that this plant looks like this? Because if it looks like that and you get it wrong and you're producing a herbal, you could die. <laughs> right? There's a lot at stake because this is a pharmacopoeia. And so people start to say, well, how could we know? How, how could this thing made in Utrecht correlate with this thing made in London or Moscow? And what would that mean? And, and that becomes, starts to become the problem. So it's a problem of international trade. It's a problem of um, analysis. And it's, and it's still a problem of representation and production, it, it seems to me. And that's how that denigration starts to happen, when people say, well, I told you, and you, you got it all wrong. <laughs>